You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Uh, we're now a few weeks into our psalm series where we hope to find a script. We've been exploring the psalms um, to find a script and gain proper language to use in our relationship with God. You see, God speaks to us primarily through his word, and we hope to speak his words back to him in our relationship with him. And so the Psalms show us an honest expression of the thoughts and emotions of the person who has put their faith in God. The Psalms show us that what we already know to be true, that life isn't always peachy, that sometimes we struggle to get out of bed to go to work or to get out of bed to come to church. Um, as the second service, you know that. Um, or even to open up his word daily. You know, that's, that's a challenge sometimes. Or any number of good deeds that a good Christian ought to do. But the Psalms aren't just a journal of life's complaints and struggles either. It shows us these raw thoughts, these raw emotions with God's work in view. And it directs these emotions into praise and prayer unto him. And so it's not just a journal of rants. It's not just a list of complaints that King David had as he was persecuted. No, it's, it's a prayer book. It's a song book. And so we want to look to it to gain this language as um, God's people. It's critical language that we ought to learn as broken people living in a broken world. Because as we know, we don't live for this broken world, but rather for God's glory. You know, we, that's a common understanding that we have in church. And yet often we go about our lives without the language, without the, the capability, without the script to know what to say to God in different times. And so the Psalms we see do this brilliantly. And I hope that we can grow in our longing for God through the Psalms as we study it. Having said all that, we'll be turning to Psalm 24 today, which if you're familiar with it at all, um, at face value, it isn't actually a psalm of the tone that I just described. It doesn't seem to have this raw emotion. You know, last week, Pete preached about this answer me when I call type of demand about God as, re as related to prayer. Um, but rather, it's typically understood, the Psalm 24, understood to be a liturgical hymn, a song of praise, if you will. It's not a response to crisis or tragedy, but it simply sings praise about God as the king of glory. So I want to explore that a little bit because the Psalms not only express lament as we know, but it guides us to express our full range of emotions to God, including happiness, joy, and peace. And so we read Psalm 24 today. Please follow along with this on the screen or in your, in your Bibles as I read. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? 
the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is God's word. Have you ever taken on a task and thought, this is impossible? Whether it's a physical, emotional difficulty, logistical challenge, or just a pure impossibility with the physics of this world, when you've realized something to be impossible, when you've made that final conclusion in your head that this will not happen for me, there's a sense of defeat, a sense of failure, this insurmountable wall or barrier that keeps us from that thing. Like running a marathon or running long distances, you know, there are some people doing that today, but that seems to be an impossibility for me in my life. But as we think about an impossible task, and most tasks um, today, this day and age, we overcome with you know, phrases like impossible is nothing. You know, we want to pursue the best thing that we can do and overcome these challenges. But we're faced today in our text with a truly, truly impossible task. And this task is posed to us in the form of a question in verse 3. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? See, ascending and standing, it's meant to give us a fuller picture of worship, mirroring those that are falling down and bowing down before God. And so it completes that sort of picture of worship. It's an intimate picture of worship as one that would rise and stand in fellowship with the holy God. You see, it's a description of the true people of God who shall ascend and stand in his presence? Of course, it's his people, the people of God, the people that he's created. It's the man of God who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to false things and does not swear deceitfully, as the text tells us. And it's in the face of what seems to be this truly impossible task that surprisingly our natural response doesn't always seem to be one of defeat when hearing this. You know, I can picture the Israelites thousands of years ago as they hear the psalm sung, saying to themselves, I've been pretty good. I followed most of God's laws, and I think I can stand with God before God. And similarly, we can be caught thinking highly of ourselves in that way, thinking, well, no one's perfect. I might not be perfect, but... I go to church every week. I give my offerings and tithes. I'm pretty good. I do what I need to do. But as sinners, it's critical that we realize we don't measure our standing before God to other sinners. We measure it against God's standard, the standard of perfection, of sinlessness, what's described here as clean hands and a pure heart. The text is taking us and asking us to consider ourselves and how we measure up against God's standard. Against this impossible standard, are you able to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? But again, with, as with other Psalms, our text doesn't just simply throw out, 
a moralistic yardstick to measure ourselves against. You see, King David points us to the answer for this impossible task. And in fact, he sandwiches that question that we have, who shall ascend? He sandwiches that question between the answers that he gives. And so let's take a look at that now as we turn to verse 1. King David introduces us to God. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He's introducing us to this God, the creator king, who possesses the whole entire earth and everything within it. He owns the whole thing. And so the natural question against that is, why does he get to rule over it? Well, David explains. He goes on to say he's the one who created it all. He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And this is a challenge that we face today as we talk about God, as they did thousands of years ago. People don't hold that God is the creator. People don't believe that God has created everything out of nothing. But what's said here, this imagery here that's given by David, is true today as it was thousands of years ago. He uses the pictures of waves, powerful waves crashing, and rivers, streams flowing. And we understand as human beings that water is a powerful, powerful force of nature that can cause massive destruction, that can also be beautiful to see. And he sees the glory and the wrath and the power of this nature. And he says that God has created it, all of it, and he's given order to all of it. And as God who has created, he gives order and subdues such powerful forces of nature. You know, this goes totally against what the pagan world believed at the time and the gods of that time as it does today. It goes completely counter to everything the world believes about the, the way that the world came to be. And this is important because it's a key reminder for God's people at that time of the Psalms, just as it is today, because it's so distinct from the world's beliefs. King David reminds us that a divine being carefully and intentionally crafted and spoke life into existence. This is a foundational truth for God's people to know that our God is the God who has reigned throughout all of eternity. He was there before creation. He created all things and he will continue to reign forever. And what this does by understanding this fact, this is the great equalizer. Nothing belongs to us, but everything is God's. There is nothing that does not belong to God and all created things are his. And this means that none of it is ours. All of it belongs to the Lord and we're mere caretakers of his things. And next, David goes on to describe in the latter half of the Psalms, he describes this creator God also as the king of glory. And a few descriptors that we see in verses 7 through 10, he is strong, he's mighty in battle, he is the Lord of hosts. And you can picture verse 7 through 10 as a sort of call and response as a king and his army march up to a castle gate and the gatekeeper is calling out, who is this king of glory? 
And we can see that this is a warrior king who's fought and won in many battles. He's proven his strength and might. He rides with the army of angels. And this warrior king has come and, he de- and he's declared. He says, the king of glory is here. And this can, ra- this can, weather, uh, this can be good news or bad news, depending on which side you're on. If you're on the side of this warrior king, this can be great news. But if you're on the opposite side, against, in opposition to this warrior king, this can be a king that can come to conquer and destroy. But we're reminded that this warrior king has come not to conquer and destroy us, but to fight for us on our behalf. And as one commentator put it on this text, he describes, as the, he describes this as the creator God, who is the king of glory and has come down to dwell in the midst of the city of human beings. And so he has not come to conquer and destroy. Instead, he's come to dwell with his people. You see, King David is drawing that line. He's drawing the line and making the case that this is where you want to be. This is the people you want to be with. Because the one who's always victorious is on this side. This is who you want to worship. This is who you want to adore. This is the person, the the being that is worthy of all of our attention, all of our worship, all of the glory. Who shall ascend to the hill of this glorious being? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question that David's considering here. And we can say with ease, not me, not any of us, as far as our own accomplishments or as far as our own character goes. I know that for myself, I'm imperfect and flawed. But the way that David portrays this king of glory, I would certainly want to be a part of that. And so David describes what people look like when they are part of his kingdom. This is a description of God's people. Those who dwell with this mighty creator, warrior, king are are those that live up to this impossible impossible task. Those with clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, those that are innocent, completely innocent of any wrongdoing. Those that have no motivations in their pure heart to do any sort of wrongdoing. Those who do not lift up their soul to what is false. Those who do not swear deceitfully. Again, that means those with integrity, perfect integrity and perfect character that they stand absolutely for what is righteous and true. These are descriptors of those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In other words, Israel. This is the true Israel. And therefore, this is the description of what God's people are to truly be like. And notice that the true Israel does not point to your birthright. It doesn't point to race. This isn't a description of the ethnic people of Israel. But these descriptions point out a person of high character, one that would share the same morals as their creator, God. It's this true Israel that will receive blessing from the Lord, as verse 5 tells us. You see, oftentimes we go through scripture, we study scripture, and, and we feel like, God has given a certain promise. God promises certain things, and it's a brand new idea in the New Testament that 
God will bless them. God will restore them. But we look to the scriptures and we see the promise and the hope that David held on to. Because this wasn't a new idea for God. He wasn't all of a sudden saying, now if they live like this, finally, I will bless them. No, we see through the scriptures that this was the purpose from the very beginning. As God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them and gave them a command to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. They were given a command to rule over the earth as king in his place, in his stead. We were created to be kings over all the earth and every living thing. God looked at his creation, man and woman, and he saw the pinnacle of his creation. He saw that it was very good. Humans that he created had a clean heart and a clean hands and a pure heart. But we know this story. Rather than clinging to God's truths, rather than holding on to his commands to fill the earth, to subdue it, rather than looking to the blessings that have already been given in perfect creation, man was tempted and failed. And man instead gave into the desire to become like God, to discern for ourselves, and fell into sin, eternally torn apart from God's presence. So when the question begs, who shall be in fellowship with God, communing with God, dwelling with God, we're left to stand and face the gaping chasm between God and man. We know this verse very well. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And this is a very apparent truth for us as we look around this world to see the brokenness in it. The brokenness fills it rather than goodness. You see how that's a reversal of what God had commanded. God had commanded people, mankind, to fill the earth with the very goodness that he had created. But instead, we fill it with brokenness and hatred and sin. We see violence and hatred everywhere, war and persecution constantly ongoing throughout man's history, suffering and pain. And we see people exchanging God's glory for the fleeting pleasure of lesser things. We see people most tragically living and going about everyday life without an, without an awareness of their need for Christ. And thus we can, even in our world, we see clearly the distance of the gap between God and man. We see this inwardly as well as we look to ourselves, as we take time each week to confess our sins here, we see that as a health, healthy practice, a helpful practice for the people of God to do so. But then it doesn't take long for us to fall back into sin. And I want us to not be mistaken in that. The sin that we fall into repeatedly, this isn't a, simply a slip up. We're not falling into sin repeatedly just by mistake. We were once designed to be rulers that rule on behalf of God the ultimate ruler, God Almighty, creator, warrior, king. But instead, we've become slaves to sin and death itself. The contrast there is so crazy that we were made to be very good, but instead we became slaves and captive to sin. We didn't get here gradually, but the moment that sin entered into the world, we became captive to it. King David recognizes this and writes this in another psalm in 51. 
He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So it's important to realize here that David's aware of this as well. King David, as he's writing this psalm, and it's important for us to realize this as well, that when we fall into sin, when we mess up, when we sin against God, rebel against his laws and commands, it's not a mistake. Our sin nature is deep rooted within us. We don't struggle by mistake or coincidence. We don't suffer and weep by coincidence. Sin touches and affects every aspect of our lives. And we live in the midst of the brokenness of it. It's important to recognize that because that determines dwelling with God, presence with God. Thinking back to the Adam and Eve story once again, what happened after they sinned? They were cast out immediately, away from God's presence, away from the perfect garden that he had created and curated himself cast away from his presence. God, who is perfectly holy, will not be tainted by the presence of our unholiness. Perhaps King David, the man after God's own heart, even though he, became, he, he came before Jesus, he was well aware of this. He was well aware of his own shortcomings and the fact that he needed an external savior, someone beside himself, someone beyond himself, to find that goodness and righteousness. He expresses as much in verse five. He says he will receive blessing. This person who ascends the hill of the Lord will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so he recognizes that this righteousness that he receives doesn't, doesn't come from within himself, but rather outside of himself from his savior. And so perhaps that gives the reason to him asking such a question, considering such a question, meditating and reflecting on this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Certainly, as we look around, as we see our own sins, as we see the sinfulness of this world, certainly not mankind. Our sinfulness touches every part of our being. Our hands are filthy. Our hearts are defiled. And we lift up our soul to every false God that we come across and we swear deceitfully to God and to others. And so God sets himself apart, sets himself upon a hill, set apart from the sinfulness of this world. But he continues to pose this question until his kingdom is restored. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall dwell with me? This is of most important concern to God as we see throughout history, as we see in Adam and Eve being cast out, though they were cast out from his presence, we also see a promise to restore them. We also see a promise to defeat the enemy. And he has worked throughout history, throughout the scriptures, throughout our lives to continue to restore his people, to set aside for himself a people a people worthy to be called his people, a people who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And so he sends his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised savior. Because you see, Jesus shall ascend the hill of the Lord. Jesus, 
stands in his holy place. Jesus had clean hands and a pure heart. He lived a perfect life, innocent, blameless, and sinless, completely sinless. Jesus lifted up his soul to God alone, submitting his will to the Father, even to the face of immense pain, immense suffering, and ultimately, as we know, to death. Jesus did not swear deceitfully. No, he himself was the way, the truth, and the life. And the book of Hebrews reminds us and tells us that many have come before Jesus that are to be commended for their faith. Many like Abraham and Noah and, and, and King David himself. They're to be commended for their faith. But, he, but the Hebrews writer also points out that they did not and could not receive what God had promised. Ultimately, Jesus is the sole perfecter and the founder of our faith. Elsewhere, we're reminded by Apostle Paul, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, whom all things were created for and through. Jesus is the warrior king who goes to battle before us, who contends for us, and ultimately we know who is victorious. Jesus is a savior who through his death and resurrection gives us his righteousness and leads us to salvation. And so seeing King David cling on to an external righteousness, the righteousness from God, the God of his salvation, seeing King David confess that, we're also moved to see the righteousness that we receive in Christ, the perfect righteousness. Because wearing the righteousness of Christ, receiving the blessing of his salvation, it means that we too can ascend the hill of the Lord. We too can stand with him in his holy place. No, we don't belong there. We didn't earn the credentials to stand there, to belong but we recognize that because of what Christ has done, Christ earns it on our behalf and gives it to us freely out of his grace. And so returning to the beginning and the series that we're going through, this psalm isn't a psalm that's written in response to chaos or crisis or some sort of tribulation. We don't see that kind of crying out to God the way that we see in some other psalms. We don't see this deep pain. We, what we see here is praise. And on, on surface, it might just seem like a song of praise, like any song that we sing. However, this ought to be the very anthem that we engrave on our heart as Christians, because this is a victory song. This is the hymn that expresses truths to remember about who God is as the creator king. It focuses on the dwelling that we have promised with him. And it reminds us of the truth of who we are in him. Because picture this with me as we turn to verse seven and seven through 10 once again, you see while we were still slaves to sin, in this call and response, while we're still slaves to sin, we're the ones that cry out, who is this king of glory? We're the ones that cry out, who's this king of glory? We're the ones questioning, who is this? We're the ones at the gate wondering what, the, what is happening. 
But having received God's gift of grace and mercy, having seen the work of Christ accomplished, fulfilled, and having been invited into fellowship with him through the righteousness of Christ, we who are saved are the ones that now roar back the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. That's the declaration we're able to make through the person, through the life, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that with me and look to God, our Savior. He's the one who initiates salvation. He is the one who executes the plan for salvation. And he's the one who continues to sustain salvation. He is the king of glory. All of creation belongs to the Lord, as the psalmist says. But the, but the title for God in this psalm is not simply king of the earth. He is the king of glory. God's kingdom isn't determined geographically, nor is it bound by any sort of boundary. God's kingdom is simply where he is. And we're reminded that Jesus has given us his spirit. He has given us a promise that he will dwell with us always. And we recognize that God's kingdom is yet to be fully restored in the brokenness that we see, in the sin that fills this world, and our hearts. But don't be mistaken, church, because the kingdom also has already begun. He continues to work in us to make us his people, that we would strive no more and rest in him because he's the one that's working. We worship here each week as we say, because God has initiated with us. He has put into action his plan for salvation from the very beginning. He continues to work. He continues to make for himself a people set apart that he would be our God, that we would be his people. The king of glory, not the king of, king of the earth, king of any other nation, but the king of glory itself has rescued us and invites us to dwell with him, to be his people. So church, I invite you to seize from your striving, seize from the pursuit of your own glory today, and rest in the king of glory who is always victorious.